you respected Thai dear community. Thank you for practicing with me tonight. Even the 15-minute sit is quite delicious. Um, and I've heard a lot that, about Open Way for many, many, many years, and I'm happy to uh, have practiced with some of you this weekend and also to be with all of you tonight see some familiar faces again. It's wonderful. Um, while we were drinking tea out there, I heard someone say that they didn't have a clue what was happening tonight. So there may be many of um, us who feel that way. Um, my intention was to speak about the practice of taking refuge. Um, and one reason I think that this is an important practice to consider and consciously engage in is because of how pulled and stretched we are in so many different ways by so many things that are troubling um, within society. Uh, for many of us, the amount of work that we do, juggling work and family, um, you probably don't need me to list anymore. There are enough things that, that we each carry that we have to find ways to refresh ourselves. We have to find ways to renew ourselves. You know, every night we go to bed, right? And we fall asleep. And we don't have a choice in that, really. I, I've stayed up all night before, but I think generally we don't have a choice. At some point we have to go to sleep. Um, but we have to make a conscious choice to practice other forms of refreshing ourselves. And taking refuge is one of those practices that can be very refreshing. I'm going to speak, I know for, I understand, I actually don't know, I understand that for a number of people in here the Buddhist terms may be unfamiliar or um, not what you typically practice with. So please consider what I offer as examples. And there may be something slightly different that doesn't, doesn't use Buddhist terms, but that you know you can rely on to refresh yourselves. Um, in, in Buddhism, when we talk about taking refuge, we're talking about taking refuge in the three jewels, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. The, one, the Buddha is the one who shows us the way in this life. The Dharma is the way of understanding and love. And the Sangha is the community that practices together to cultivate those qualities. And Buddhism definitely doesn't have an exclusive uh, corner on that market of wisdom teachers, wisdom teachings, and communities that come together to practice and support that way, support living that way. So when we talk about taking refuge, what does that mean? I mean, what does taking refuge mean? What, what do you think of when you think of the word refuge? A safe place. A safe place, yeah. Wildlife refuges, for example, safe place. So a place where we can relax and feel safe and not worried. Uh, or at least have an opportunity to put down our worries a little bit. I know we didn't, um, we didn't have a lot of meditation instruction tonight. Um, and meditation may be a familiar practice to you, but one of the, one of the things that a, a young woman from Canada said um, in a meeting with me at Deer Park Monastery was that when she offers meditation in her sangha at night, she will say, so follow your breathing. And when thoughts arise, you can see that it's a thought. And then you can say, oh, this is a happy moment, which is not what you expect, right? What you expect, what I probably have said before at least is, and then let it go. And instead she's saying, recognize 
that this is a happy moment, that this is a moment when I've recognized my thoughts and I can bring my awareness back to resting in my breathing and whatever the focus of the meditation might be. And we can recognize those sort of happy refuges throughout the day through a continuous mindfulness practice. And then going into, or continuous mindfulness efforts, how about that? Going into taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha requires a little bit more conscious effort. So we recognize the importance of going back and touching the teachers who show us the way in the life, to live the life we want to live, to touch the best part of ourselves and bring that forward, even if it comes forward incrementally. You know, we all know some people that will be around that it's just wonderful to be around this person, and they're blossoming, they're in touch with that best part of themselves, and they're sharing it with others. And the more we touch that part of ourselves, the stronger it becomes, that energy of awakening, that Buddha that's within. So when we talk about the Buddha, the Dharma, and Sangha, I didn't say this a minute ago, but we're talking about not just something external, but something internal. We're talking about our own capacity to be awake. The teachers are present in us. All of the teachers who've ever shown us the way to love are present in us. None of us made up the way to love on our own. Somebody gave us love. That's how we learn to love. And so when we think about a, a wisdom teacher, it's typically love, compassion, and energy that comes from that teacher. And we want to take refuge in that. So during, we can make, one of the ways to, that I find to take uh, refuge in the Buddha in a conscious basis is to turn back to readings on a regular basis. And it can even be a saying on a calendar. I don't know if they still make the Zen saying a day calendars, but there are plenty of things like that, that that we can make a conscious effort to recognize what we're taking in and not just read, oh, today's Zen saying is from Suzuki Roshi. Zen can be summed up in two words, not always so. What do we do with that? So making a conscious effort to recognize those teachers who water that goodness in us. And it can, it can be the Buddha. It can be, you know, for me it could be Marv Cohen, my Sunday school teacher when I was in high school. Uh, it, can, it can be our dogs. For those of us who like dogs. What better examples of forgiveness and love than your dog, right? And we could get into the dog-cat debate, but <laughs> cats, cats teach us other things. <laughs> uh, so recognizing who are those teachers. And as I said, in our practice, we come back to the Buddha a lot for strength and wisdom, but it's not exclusive. And those teachings themselves are called the Dharma. So the Dharma is typically, it's used in more than one way, but in this sense, we're talking about taking refuge, finding that safe place by supporting and nourishing ourselves with teachings on understanding and love. And if we make a conscious effort to find those encouraging words every day and to be in touch with them, then we're nourishing that energy in us as well. We can also do, I don't know what y'all do, what do you usually do on Monday nights? Lots of different things. Lots of different things. Walking, meditation, and reading usually. Usually it's a very empirical and 
Okay, so I uh, sitting and walking meditation, a reading of some sort, and a sharing circle, and maybe a circle for healing. So the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha are in that. We're cultivating our own Buddha bodies when we sit in silence. We're cultivating our Buddha bodies when we uh, engage with each other. It's really hard. Sometimes I have a hard time pulling apart Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha because they're in each other. And so for me, sometimes it feels like a tangled ball of yarn, which I can pull apart, but I'm not always really sure I want to. Um, so when we, when we separate them, though, we're talking about the teacher, the teachings, and the community. And so the teachings are found in the recitations and in other things. For me, the Sangha is one of the most important things in my life. The Sangha here tonight is part of me. My Sangha in Charlotte and the Sanghas in the other places that I sit Probably many of us have sat by ourselves from time to time, maybe even every day, and it's not the same. The energy when we come together as a Sangha is huge. It's just, and even if nobody else in the room knows what we're sitting with on a particular night, we can feel supported by the energy of those people who are sitting with us. And we can also be supported when we share, but it's not always necessary. The Sangha is a really precious jewel. And we live in a time where individualism is so important that we, we've got to be different than that one or this one or that one. We've got to be individuals. And not only that, we've got to be special individuals. So we put our posts on Facebook and we see how many people like it or how many people get into an argument with us over whatever we posted. Because they obviously don't know any better, right? They don't understand that I was right when I posted that, whatever it was. Um, I don't have anything against Facebook. I, I tend to stay away. I'm, I'm on it, but I tend to stay away from it because of the kind of proclamations that people engage in that's not real discussion. And I'm really glad to sit down and have conversations. But it feels like shouting sometimes. And that's one of the ways that we make our walls rigid and create a kind of uh, false refuge. We think that we're creating a safe refuge when we create these walls around ourselves. And what we've done is closed our hearts off to the world and created a separateness that um, cannot ever heal us but can only harm us. So the, the Sangha the Sangha supports the Buddha and the Dharma. And unless the unless the teacher and the teachings are present in the community, it's not a true Sangha. It's just dinner with friends or something. It's a picnic. Um, so sometimes when we're in community we have to be able to bring that energy. We have to be able to bring... And you don't have to do it out loud. Nobody has to know that, you know, you, you know we had such a good time. It was, it was because I brought the Buddha and I was communicating the Dharma to you, right? Well, <laughs> just being there, just being there with that sort of energy can help create Sangha and can create healing in various circumstances. To take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha isn't just saying something. It's, a, it's an ongoing practice. If you don't tend the wildlife refuges by keeping them separate um, from the highways, then they get destroyed. They're no longer safe places. There's an animal bridge. Did you know there's an animal bridge? Mm -hmm. I never saw one of those before. 
There's an animal bridge. That was a good way of taking care of the animals um, and, and providing the safety for them. I think one of the most difficult things for us is, well, for me, I learned on the retreat that things that I think are true for everyone actually aren't. Um, and I know that. I just was reminded of it. But um, one of the most difficult things that I've had to learn over the last 30 years in this practice is the practice of trusting the Sangha. Because you know what? I know the best way to do things. And it's really difficult when um, my habit energy is so strong to move in this direction of, of taking care of something and uh, knowing that it will be done right and recognizing that practice as a sangha is practice as a community and that I practice as one cell in the sangha. That if I'm going to take refuge in the Sangha, that I can't take control of the Sangha. Um, about 20 years ago or so, we had some difficulty in the, the larger Plum Village Sangha community. And... Um, at one point, I wrote a letter to, to Thai Thich Nhat Hanh about it um, to clarify something that I could see that was going on that I knew was misinformation and wanted to be careful with. And when he wrote me back, part of the letter says, trust the Sangha. And I think there's nothing more precious than that bit of advice. Trust the Sangha. Recognize that when we come together as a community of practice, that we have the capacity to do far more than we do as just an individual. And it doesn't, it doesn't always have to be done my way. Uh, whatever we're deciding in the Sangha, whatever we're, I mean, even just the reading, or who's going to read, since that's one of the things that happens. It, it may be that there's something that's best for the Sangha that's different than what I might have thought. And the only way I can take refuge in the Sangha and trust in the Sangha is if I recognize that I can let go. the Sangha. It's a great gift to be able to come here. And there's al there are always some difficulties within a Sangha. I don't, I'm not trying to start anything. <laughs> but there are. There are often difficulties in the Sangha or the difficulties between a couple of people. Uh, and we have, we have ways to encourage reconciliation, but to recognize the preciousness of the Sangha in general, it's, it's just so huge. I really don't have words for it. I think the last thing I actually want to say is that um, While we say, trust in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, trust and take refuge in the Three Jewels, uh, the other principal teaching is that there's no truth outside ourselves. It's our experiences where we find the truth. So what we want to do is to take those words and that the Buddha taught, or those words of encouragement from another tradition, 
um, and see if they mean anything in our lives. Is this true? Because when we talk about faith in Buddhism, we're not talking about faith in something that we can't see. We're not talking about faith in um, belief of what happens after death. There, a lot of Buddhists believe in reincarnation. You can believe whatever you want to about what happens after death. The real question is, how do I live right now? So when we talk about faith in Buddhism, we're talking about faith in our own capacity to wake up. Faith in the teachings, because through our life, through our experience, we've seen that they do help us become a more loving person. That they do, the teachings do help us transform suffering. That when we recognize the Buddha within us, our own awakening capacity, that we have found a place where we can rest and that we can lean on. Ty tells a story, I know I said that was the last thing. Ty tells a story about when he was um, in Korea and there were masses of people. And he had to get from here to there through all those people. And he wasn't sure how he was going to do it. And then he said to himself that he didn't really have to do it, that the Buddha could do it, the Buddha within himself. So as he walked, he just said, let the Buddha breathe, let the Buddha walk with each step. Let the Buddha breathe, let the Buddha walk. So that it was no longer Thai walking, it was the Buddha. And I use that practice a lot. I use it sometimes if I'm getting ready to do something that I'm not particularly comfortable with and I want to get out of the way, I want to get out of my own way, then I may, I may say, let the Buddha do this, or I may say, let Thai do this, or I may say, let one of my other teachers do this um, internally, looking at my spiritual teachers. Uh, I do it sometimes when I feel like I'm getting too egotistical about whatever it is I'm going to do. Because anything I present, anything I ever do, is not, it's, I, I may be the final condition for what comes out, for what happens. But we practiced with emptiness at the retreat a lot this weekend about the awareness of ourselves as part of the stream of life. If I'm using my intellect to do some of my professional work, I didn't make up this brain. I didn't create the capacity to understand things. I ha I'm really good with, um, not in the middle of a talk I say this, right? I'm really good with words. Um, I'm really good with the written word. And that's my grandmother who came over from Wales and taught English, the Queen's English in the North Carolina mountains. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I crochet. But the only reason I know how to crochet and to make things is because she taught me. So she's crocheting. Everything I do, down to the love I offer to other people, is because of something I received. So when I feel that I'm getting too much in the way, then I'll practice that same verse uh, to help me get out of the way. So I may, and, and there's a song, which the people who came on the retreat might not be surprised to hear. I think I have a song for everything. I used to volunteer in the prisons, and that's what the guy said at one point. Do you always have a song? <laughs> Why, yes, I do. Um, but the, the poem that Ty wrote about it is to go with your steps, and you can modify anything so that it works for you. But So if I were to use it, I might, his poem is, Let the Buddha breathe, let the Buddha walk. I don't have to breathe, I don't have to walk. So we come back to 
calling on that strong energy in us, that beautiful energy in us, and getting the ego out of the way, getting the part of me that needs to feel important or wants to feel important out of the way. One reason I think taking refuge is so important is because the world needs more people who can love. There are plenty of people who can write protest letters and march and shout and scream. There's not enough love. I think that's another song, isn't it? What the world needs now. No. And it may be that part of what we engage our love in is writing letters and marching and trying to change things so that there's not as much suffering in the world. I believe, I may be wrong, my husband once said I'm often wrong but seldom in doubt, so I believe that um, I can do the same act out of love and out of whatever the energy is, it's not out of hate, but without love, let's just say that, with love and without love. And that the energy that I put out there is completely different. And our loving energy is a radiant energy. So that it's like when you put wood in stoves. The, the radiant energy heats up the room, but it also heats up the stove. So when we light that fire of love in our belly, and our energy and our action comes from that, it doesn't just heat up the room. It also heats up us. And it continues. And the practice of taking refuge for me, and I invite you to try it, is one of the practices of cultivating and sustaining that loving energy so that we do have it to offer. And when we recognize that our stores are low, we can always come back to the Sangha and feel that, that great, wonderful energy of being together and having the same intention of being present and cultivating our true, our true awareness, our true home. So I can never imagine that anyone has any questions, but um, you might surprise me, or I might ask you more questions, like, what is there besides animal bridges? Yes. I'll repeat your question. You mentioned the word reconciliation and it really rang with me. And I don't know if there's anything else you can say about it. Maybe it's the way to reconciliation is letting your ego, making your ego get out of the way. But if there's more you can say about the work of reconciliation, I'd like to hear it. So the question is, and I'm going to shorten it a little bit, but um, uh, what else can we reflect on with regard to reconciliation? And you know what? I forgot to, I'll come back to it, but I forgot to tell everybody here 
who wasn't at the retreat, that it's called question and answer, but I consider it question and response because I don't always have an answer, and actually, I don't usually have an answer, but I can talk. Um, but on the reconciliation question, um, you know, I, th- I think it depends on how big we're thinking, because th- if we think as big as our society right now, there's an awful lot of reconciliation work that needs to go on. Um, with regard to personal relationships and reconciliation, um, there's a... I think, I think there needs to be a foundation laid so that in our personal relationships, when we're moving toward, rec- when we're attempting to reconcile, we have to be in a position where we can trust each other. I think trust comes, some trust has to come before reconciliation is possible. And when we're, when we're raw, and hurt, um, it's hard to trust in a circumstance where we think that um, the other person might aggravate those hurts. My experience with reconciliation is largely around the practice of deep listening, even more than mindful speech, but having the ability to listen. Um, I had been estranged from my mother for several years, and um, I I, I could easily use up the rest of the time telling you what she did wrong, right? but that's not healthy. And she was talking to me about um, something I didn't have any interest in at all. In fact, something that had caused a lot of division in our family. And I wanted to point that out to her. And I know I'm not the only person who's had this experience. Not with my mother, but... um, And instead I recognized how precious it was just to be there with her and listen to her talk. And it didn't really matter what she was saying. And it felt like when I was able to relax in that way, that so was she. Um, we, we do have formal processes for reconciliation that are... Um, uh, there's, there's a reconciliation document that the Dharma Teacher Harmony Committee in the Plum Village tradition came up with that's on the website, orderofinterbeing.org. But we, we do things, it, so much depends on the circumstances, but part of what we do is appreciate the other person. Um, and so looking at what do I appreciate about you, and maybe not touching that sore spot, assuming there's any contact at all. I think it's a little different if there's none. But when we're with other people, and we've had difficulty with them. Um, we, some of us, may be inclined to say, "Let's talk about this problem. Let's fix this." And maybe the time isn't right. Maybe we need a little bit more uh, calming down, or and I don't mean that in the sense of calming from anger, but letting the hurt calm down, just like. If you have a wound and it becomes very inflamed, it hurts to touch it. Um, so in our practice, we are in touch. We're in touch with what's good. With the, we're offering. We call it flower watering. Um, and so, we appreciate the other person in small ways. Um, and if you, if it's a difficult situation. Um, offering too much flower watering can feel false. And I think there's a difficulty if we're trying to apply reconciliation or any other practices in a formulaic way and not dealing with the person who's right in, right in front of us. 
So we, we're careful not to exacerbate the wounds that are there, but to try to build the foundation of trust and to recognize, come back to ourselves and recognize our roles in the difficulties so that we can um, we can come to an understanding of ourselves and bring bring I don't uh, not um, let me say let me think about how to say this come to an understanding of ourselves so that when we come to that person we're not in the way of the reconciliation because when we're dealing with people we love sometimes it matters who's right and who's wrong but usually not the important thing is the relationship um, so we are the formal practice is to engage in watering flower with the, uh, watering the other person's flowers positive energy to the other person and then to rec- recognize and share that um, we felt hurt by particular conduct or we apologize for a particular conduct that hurt the other person. And there's a difference between apologizing, everybody, we all know this, there's a difference between apologizing by saying, um, I'm sorry I spoke so harshly to you. You really pissed me off when you <laughs> didn't like my brownies. Or something like that. No, that's that's not an apology. There was a New York Times article a couple of weeks ago about how to do a real apology that was that was very interesting. Um, it, it was commentary on the lack of a real apology with within the political realm and social realm, but it applied to everybody. So if I'm really sorry that I hurt you, I don't need to say anymore. I'm really sorry I hurt you. So we, we, we bring forth our regrets in that way. The other thing about reconciliation that I think is important is that reconciliation is based on a relationship. And so it's the way we take care of the relationship before the break that requires reconciliation that makes a difference in how we can reconcile and whether reconciliation is possible. I'm also a great believer that when we have um, differences that cause splits like that um, between people that um, even when we're not looking, if we're practicing and and um, being present, aware of what's going on in ourselves, aware of our intentions, uh, that even if we're not in touch with that person, that healing is still going on the same way that when we injure our body, even if you don't think, you know, you've even if before you get to the cabinet to get the Band-Aid out, your body's already started working on it. And I have faith that our other relationships are like that, too. It's not just a physical relationship of body cells. And, and that's actually held true in my experiences as well.
characterized the 15 minutes that as delightful. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I guess I feel like um, what I get out of, of meditation is what I intend. And I'm wondering what it, what if, if there's a process or you know what kinds of processes uh, go on to make it delightful. What kind of processes go on to make meditation delightful? Um, In particular tonight it was just resting and letting go. And uh, so in, in, in my meditation tonight, my practice was actually part of the time my practice was let the Buddha breathe, let the Buddha walk, let the Buddha sit, let the Buddha breathe, let the Buddha sit, because I was sitting, not walking. But so, um, you know, we, I always say we do this and we do that, but... Uh, in many ways, we carry the worlds on our shoulder. And it doesn't, it may be different size worlds for different ones of us, but meditation can give us a chance to put that down and to just relax and stop and recognize uh, that we, for 15 minutes, there's nothing to do, nowhere to go. And then usually Thai, Thai teaches that we should always have an object of our meditation. Excuse me, but it, it starts with um, the stopping and calming part. So we always, when we do guided meditations, it starts with um, awareness of breathing in and awareness of breathing out. And I think it depends on how your day's been in the evening, whether that should be the whole meditation. Because if you've had a really busy, frantic day, maybe the best thing to do is to just sit. Follow your breathing in, follow your breathing out, and save the, save the deep looking, the second part of meditation, for another time when you have more energy. Um, our Sangha meets at 8.30 in the morning on Sundays. So uh, we... We are meeting on a calm day, at a calm time, and um, I find it's very different from our Thursday evening meetings, which start at six, a little earlier than your start at yeah six. Um, so the the meditation um, that I found delightful was just letting go and not feeling rushed. Recognizing there was not, there's nothing to do. Recognizing our bodies are breathing. Recognizing our bodies will take care of ourselves. To take care of themselves, take care of us. Without, um, without any real effort, uh, other than to care for it properly, but. They'll keep breathing and our hearts will keep beating. And I think that's pretty amazing. I think that's pretty wonderful. The energy of life that's present in us. So sometimes when I don't want to go very far into a focus, I'll just be aware of the energy of life that's in me and around me. and find that a very nourishing and happy meditation. Glad to be alive. Glad the trees are breathing for me.
hopefully you well I don't want them to feel bad but um, maybe they feel like it's too um, I really wanted to go to the retreat and I'm sitting with a lot of feeling of mourning for this mm. moment um, so maybe that's just clinging um, but I feel like a separateness um, like missing out regret for not going but maybe because we're talking about Sangha, we are connected, but to me that's just words and I don't really feel it. Mm. So I don't really know what my question is. Mm. Maybe how can I deal with that mm. from tonight forward? So, um, feeling regret about having missed the retreat and regret with an element of sadness, not necessarily hurt, but the sad-flavored regret. Um, I don't, I hope, you, you apologized at the beginning of your, that you hoped it didn't do something, and I feel like saying the same thing, that I hope it, oops, I hope it doesn't sound glib, but have a retreat right now. Every moment, every moment is a chance. It's not the same. I know it's not the same. But this is the, this is the one chance. This is what we have right now. And the only way, the next time you get to go to a retreat, the only way you're going to be at the retreat then is if you're here right now including being here with that feeling of, of uh, hurt, um, uh, sadness around not being able to participate in the retreat. We missed you. But if you're here right now, then you'll be at the next retreat when you have an opportunity to. And it may also be that, you know, some of the things that we did during the retreat to nourish ourselves might be nourishing for you now to practice with. Because that's what we did. We took things and practiced with them. And we did practice as a sangha. We practiced as a community. And it's the collective energy. It's the collective energy that's here in this room, a little bit less concentrated because we've all come from different places to this evening. But some some of the um, practices we did in the retreat included being aware of our um, our connection with all life, um, our connection with our spiritual ancestors and our blood ancestors, and practice walking with our ancestors. to be aware of the elements of uh, life in us and around us, as I just said a minute ago. And to, I actually don't know if people did everything I suggested either, so, but practicing gratitude was one of the, one of the things I suggested was, um, I shared that sometimes I practice gratitude by being grateful for something I touch. Everything I touch in a particular day, I might do it. I especially like to do it around Thanksgiving. Um, But right now to be thankful for the cushion that keeps us off the cold floor and supports our spine, for your smile. the friends sitting around. I think it's very different too when people come and talk about what a great experience they had on the retreat. Um, I'm not sure how to share about a retreat in a way that doesn't feel like that. Mm -hmm. 
But one thing we could do, we have two minutes until it's the bell time, but um, we could do a guided meditation that we did on the retreat, and it'll probably take us a little bit over that gets us in touch with the ancestors. I'll do it really short. Want to do that? Okay, just slide the bell to me. Sit comfortably and upright in a way that's right for your body right now. Take loving care of your body by adjusting anything that needs adjusting. And we begin by listening to three sounds of the bell. Let the sound of the bell penetrate you. Let us listen with our whole being and not just with our ears. Breathing in, I know this body is breathing in. Breathing out, I know this body is breathing out. In, out. Breathing in, I call to mind someone who loves me. Breathing out, I feel the energy of this love filling my whole being. Remembering someone who loves me feeling filled with love.
breathing in, I remember someone I love dearly. Breathing out, I let this love fill my being. Remembering someone I love, feeling filled with love. Breathing in, I feel the love in me and around me. Breathing out, I radiate love, offering it to myself and to the world. Aware of love in and around me, radiating love. 